morning. Um, today's reading is taken from Acts 12. I think it goes on the screen behind us, doesn't it? Verses 1 to 25. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Peter, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes and sandals on. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. 
Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Must be one of the least familiar chapters in the whole book of Acts. I don't think I've ever had to explain it before in a sermon, but I can see why it's um, important. Just as we know that life is not all plain sailing, but rather can be quite rough at times, uh, we caught, I think it was, was it Joe singing as we were, when we were gathering that uh, Horatio Spafford song, Is Well with My Soul? Well, he has a line in that. When sorrows like the sea billows roll. And what uh, Horatio Spafford is expressing is how he has reacted to the tragedies of his life, which included the death of his four-year-old son. Then in 1871, uh, the financial ruin he experienced in the Chicago fire the economic downturn in 1873, which uh, delayed him joining the family on a trip to Europe. And tragically, on that trip, four of his daughters, all four of them, were killed when their ship was in collision. Only his wife survived. So why does God allow some to have long lives and some short? Why was James beheaded? and Peter released. The expansion of the early Christian church was marked with great success. We've seen it at Jerusalem, at Samaria, with uh, the representative of Ethiopian Judaism and the representative of um, Roman Gentiles, Cornelius. And it would go on, as we touched on last week, uh, from Antioch in concentric circles, all rippling out, so as to cover the entire Roman Empire and beyond. And here in chapter 12, though, there is a setback, the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter. Now, both were apostles, leaders of the church, and um, they they formed that little little, uh, triumvirate of Peter, James, and John, James's brother, who seemed to be the closest to Jesus. They were the three who, uh, who saw Jesus transfigured. In other words, they saw Jesus as he really is before the resurrection. One is killed. One is heading for it. It was not looking good at this point in time for the spread of the gospel. Now, who spotted... Um, this week's accidental mistake. Now, you may have been expecting one. After all, on our first return two weeks ago to here, I forgot to turn the mic on. Last week, I turned up in sunglasses, but because I was sort of hurried to leave, I forgot to bring my normal glasses with me. This week, I didn't bring sunglasses, just in case. But this week, if you look at the, the, the outline, I'm sure you've all spotted it, haven't you? Yes, I'm sure you have, you see. It's not Herod Antipas. 
it's Herod Agrippa the first, you see. In the rush to provide an outline, I just saw my notes, Herod A, and got them mixed up. Herod Antipas is Agrippa's father. Anyway, so Herod Agrippa, he is the one who's leading the counterattack on the church and the spread of the gospel. And he was a tyrant. And he plotted and executed a double assault here on the church, on James, who's beheaded, Peter, who is heading that way. But Peter is miraculously rescued, and the word of God continued, we read at the end, to increase and spread. And Herod Agrippa is dead. What Luke is doing is contrasting the destructive power of God with his saving power. Throughout church history, that pendulum has switched from expansion and opportunity, oh sorry, expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat. We see it in British history in the last 500 years, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. We have had the ups, the reformers, the Puritans, the evangelical revival, but there has since about 1880, the church in the West has been on the slide. But the power of death and hell can never prevail over the church. We have Jesus' promise that the church will never be destroyed this side of the second coming. It is built on a rock. Now Herod Agrippa is an interesting character who suffered from an inflated ego. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, And his father was, as I said, Herod Antipas. Now, he had been packed off to Rome for his education. And some of his classmates subsequently became emperors, Caligula and Claudius, who seemed to be as egocentric and as dysfunctional as Herod. However, once he was king they gave him successive portions of Palestinian territory so that his kingdom became as large as Herod the Great's had been. In fact, Caligula gave him the title king. And his grandfather, you might recall, Herod the Great, had tried to kill Jesus at birth. His father, Herod Antipas, added his weight to the condemnation of Jesus. And now Herod Agrippa is out to kill off Jesus' leading disciples. Now large standing armies cost a lot of money. They are expensive. So the Romans, to maintain their Pax Romana, had to do it by fear of the adverse consequences. There weren't many troops, actually. There were 120, I believe, in Jerusalem at the time and a population maybe as much as half a million. There was a garrison at Caesarea Maritima, but I think, you know, that was not particularly large, just a couple of cohorts. They really depended on uh, having a a good uh, disciplined army that they could call upon to whack them hard if they rebelled. So what they would do is they would be particularly hard on any kind of uh, hint of disturbance or revolt. And their puppet rulers, like Herod, lived a rather sort of paranoid life because if they allowed any disruption to the Pax Romana, they were in big, big trouble. 
Now, what Agrippa's tactics are is he decides to try and placate the majority population, the Jews. I mean, the Jews actually naturally despised him because he'd had his Roman education. And, of course, he wasn't a Jew. He was an Idumean. So that's two grounds for disliking him. But he thought that would be a good move. If he could sort of suck up to them, then uh, he'd be okay. So any kind of... uh, small minority group, like the Christians, good move to try and uh, crush them. So verse 1, we read, so he set out to persecute them, and the apostle James was beheaded, verse 2. And then we read that this so pleased the Jews that he proceeded to Peter also, presumably with the intention to try and execute him. Once the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread had passed, when trials and uh, sentencing was suspended. Now you may recall in the Gospels how James and his brother John had asked Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom of God. But Jesus warned them that they would instead drink his cup and share his baptism, meaning that they would suffer too. Mark 10, 38 and 39. And James was executed John was exiled, Revelation 1.9, and Peter escaped for the time being. It is a mystery, meaning that God has not revealed to us the reasons why some are taken and some carry on living. So we find Peter, most probably in the Antonia fortress, guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, waiting for his show trial and the inevitable fate. But Herod Agrippa is heading for defeat, verses 5 to 19. And we read, Peter was kept in prison and the church was earnestly praying to God for him, just as they'd done on Peter's two previous imprisonments by the Jewish ruling council. On the first occasion, the church had met for prayer affirming that God was sovereign, he is in charge of everything, nothing can happen outside of his will, though he does permit things which are not in accordance with his uh, moral standards. So people like Herod, Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews who conspired against Jesus do only what we read in Acts 4, his power, God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And on Peter's second imprisonment, an angel of the Lord had opened the doors of the jail and set him free in Acts 5. Well, they must be thinking, could he do it again? So the church set about earnestly praying, the kind of prayer that churches engage in when they need a couple of million quid to build, or somebody gets a grim result um, from a diagnosis. The church believed that either by a miracle or by some quite natural means that God uh, overrules him, that uh, we would call providence, the world might call coincidence, that God could release him. So we have these two communities. We have the church and the world, and each have appropriate weapons. Herod had the power of the sword and the security of the prison. 
the church had prayer, which is the only power the powerless possess. So Peter is chained by the wrists to two soldiers and two others guard the entrance. He's seemingly unable to escape. And most likely the next day he's going to be tried and executed. Now remember at the end of John's Gospel, 18 to 19, Jesus had predicted Peter's martyrdom, the kind of death Jesus said by which Peter would glorify God, John writes. Now there's no record here of Peter being anxious or expecting deliverance. He simply rested in the knowledge that God was in control and he fell asleep. And it was a pretty deep sleep, as we'll soon recognize. Well, the guards have successfully kept Peter's family and friends uh, out, but they did not have the power to keep out the angel of the Lord. And suddenly, as the angel appeared, we then see what's happening. It's true that the word angelos can simply mean a human messenger. It's used in that way a few times in the Gospels. But it's used uh, differently here. It's used in the way that Luke has been using it through much of his Gospel and for this first half of Acts. In fact, he's used it 15 times in this particular way. The way of describing a divine intervention by a heavenly agent. And so we see that a light shone in his cell and Peter is released by a succession of events. Let me read verses 7 to 11. The angel of the Lord struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without doubt, that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. He started off half asleep, and now, verse 12, he is wide awake, out of prison, and he is in no need of the angel. He doesn't have any need for a miracle. He knows where he is. He knows where he can find a safe house with Christians. So he's off to Mary's house. Now this is Mary who is the sister of Barnabas and the mother of this young John Mark who is mentioned at the end of the chapter. The young John Mark who was to go off on Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey and subsequently travelled with the Apostle Peter and according to substantial Christian tradition is the writer of the Gospel that bears his name. Was this then the room that is described by him in his Gospel 14-15, the large upper room furnished and ready, ready for the Last Supper when Jesus 
ate the Passover with the twelve, and where perhaps the apostles lived between the Ascension and Pentecost in Acts 1. It was certainly a spacious place with an outer entrance and a courtyard between it and the main house, and there had gathered many people to pray. And Peter arrives and he knocks on the door, verse 13, and Rhoda, the servant girl, asks, who's there? Recognising his voice, instead of opening the door, she left Peter outside and went back to the others to tell them, whose response to her news was fantastic, overjoyed, wonderful. Well, not a bit of it. You are out of your mind, they say to her. It's ironic, isn't it, that a group which has been praying for this to happen disbelieve her. Well, God has to be patient with us. But when they saw Peter, they were astonished. Peter has to sort of quieten them down. It's in the middle of the night. You know, it's going to attract attention. But he updates them on what's been happening to him. And he tells them to tell James, who is also the son of a Mary, but Mary who is also the mother of Jesus. So James, this James is Jesus' half-brother, who was really to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then 17, Peter is off to another place, presumably some kind of temporary hiding place for safety. And Peter later pops up in Antioch, but is back in Jerusalem by the time we get to Acts 15. Meanwhile, back at the prison, there is turmoil amongst the soldiers. No doubt they are incredibly fearful because under Roman law, being a prison officer was bad news because if anybody escaped, you then suffered the penalty that they were in there for. In this case, death, which is what happens when Peter couldn't be found. And this was not the outcome that Herod Agrippa had planned. The the escape both dented his ego and disappointed the Jews. So with his tail between his legs, he leaves um, Jerusalem and goes to Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast, just up from the present-day Tel Aviv, where he dies. And we'll see why in the last section of 19 to 24. Herod's victim had escaped him, but Herod himself was still at large. With no international court of justice to try tyrants, God is left to dispense justice. While Herod had returned to the provincial capital, enjoying the sea breezes God struck. And Luke goes into the backstory of this event. Did you notice this week in Beirut, at that terrible tragedy, that uh, after the explosion around the docks, you can see piles and piles of grain. It had blown up the grain silos. Lebanon is dependent upon the import of grain today, just as it was in the first century when the grain came from Canaan. And in this particular situation, for some reason, Tyre and Sidon, principal cities of Lebanon today, 
that uh, they were dependent on imported grain. They'd somehow had some kind of uh, bust up with uh, Herod Agrippa, who supplies it. And they were pretty desperate to get back on good terms with him so that the grain would carry on coming and they wouldn't starve. Blastus is the intermediary who kind of links them with the king and a summit meeting arrives. And this is what Luke records in verses 21 to 23. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. This is how the Jewish historian Josephus records the same event of what he describes of as a festival at Caesarea Maritima in his book Antiquities. On the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theatre early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he is a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, Yet shall we henceforth own thee as a superior, as superior to, a, to mortal nature. Upon this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. But he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings just as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with a most violent intensity. He therefore looked, up, looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept that providence allots as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. And when he had said this, his pain became more violent. His idea of God is one of fate. But he doesn't really repent. And so he suffers that outcome. So Luke and Josephus agree that Herod was at Caesarea for an important public event, that Herod was in his royal robes, that the people flatter him, and he basks in it without realising the insincerity of it. And both agree that it is his pride in accepting the attribution of divinity. It's for that reason that he's struck down. 
Luke says, because Herod did not give praise to God. Josephus has Herod saying, I who was by you called immortal am immediately to be hurried away by death. He glorified himself instead of God. How should he have responded to such public acclamation? The composer of the, in the 19th century, Franz Joseph Haydn, makes it clear. In 1880, which was the year before Haydn died, he was present at the Vienna Music Hall, where his oratorio, The Creation, was being performed. Weakened by age, the great composer was confined to a wheelchair. As the majestic work moved along, the audience was caught up with tremendous emotion. When the passage, and there was light, was reached, the chorus and the orchestra burst forth in such praise that the crowd could no longer restrain its enthusiasm. The vast assembly arose in spontaneous applause. Haydn struggled to stand, and he motioned for silence. And with his hand, he pointed heavenward, and he said, no, no, not from me, but from thence comes all. And having given glory and praise to the Creator, he fell back into his chair, exhausted. In striking contrast to this, the death of a tyrant, Luke adds one of his summary sentences, but the word of the Lord well, the word of God continued to increase and spread. You see, Luke in this chapter records the complete reversal of the church's situation. At the beginning, Herod is on the rampage, persecuting, arresting, and killing church leaders. But at the end of the chapter, it is Herod who is dead. The chapter has opened with James dead, Peter in prison, Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow the power of human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants are permitted for a time to brag and boast but they will not last. In the end, their regimes will be broken, inflated pride punctuated and flattened. It is a mystery by which the Bible means the reason is hidden from us for the moment, that one of the leading apostles is allowed to be killed and his brother John is not and his friend Peter escapes death this time. This is often the case. Sometimes, as with Joseph in Egypt, he is puzzled to begin with. He is humbled, and later it is revealed to him why he had been sold into slavery. At the end of Genesis, we read, God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If we don't know the reason why in this life, we will do in the next one.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace and power over the events of all life and history. And may we take courage and may we take understanding from this episode and apply it to the situations that we might find ourselves in. In your name we pray. Amen.